Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. For some time now, we have been working our way through Shakespeare's history play tetralogy that began with Richard II, moved through Henry IV, parts one and two, and now ends with Henry V, in which we have arrived at the climactic point, which in this play, unlike the standard structure in which act three is the climactic or turning point act in a five act structure, here it happens to be act four, and the climax is one of the great battles of English history, the Battle of Agincourt in France, one of the great victories of British forces against what surely seemed like impossible odds. This was dramatized first by Shakespeare, then in our time, film versions of this play by Laurence Olivier in 1944 and Kenneth Branagh in 1989. And it is about time perhaps before we follow up with that climactic act and the end of the play, we will end our discussion of Henry V next week. And I do believe after four plays full of battles and killings, I think it's probably high time for another comedy after that. But here, on the verge of the great battle, perhaps we can pause for a moment and look back at the larger historical picture, which I have not yet totally sketched. All of the things that we have been witnessing in the history tetralogy are parts of a larger conflict known to historians as the Hundred Years' War. And believe it or not, that's actually true, although the Hundred Years are punctuated by any number of truces. Nevertheless, off and on, there was continuous war and conflict for actually even a bit longer than a hundred years. Uh, dates may differ according to historians, but roughly from about 1337 to about 1453 or 55. England versus France, that is the overarching conflict. And why is England going to war with France and in France? It all goes back to the claims that derive from the invasion of William of Normandy, France, William the Conqueror, coming over in 1066 and conquering England so that the line of kings in England up to and including Henry V are the in anglicized Plantagenet kings, Plantagenet kings, that are of French derivation. And this gives, at least in terms of legal fictions, this gives the English a historical claim to the throne of France, not just to the throne of England. It is largely a legal fiction, but nevertheless, it provoked an awful lot of real war and death. 
All of the events of the Tetralogy are part of this larger Hundred Years' War and much else besides. The Battle of Agincourt, Act Four coming up, the turning point and the great victory of the English, who do, by virtue of that victory, who will rule France temporarily. It is so, so temporary. And the audience, the original audience of the play would have known this because this was their history. This is all, however embroidered by Shakespeare, this is all historical fact. And Shakespeare is roughly faithful to historical fact, whatever thematic and ideological framing he has done with those facts. Nevertheless, this is roughly what transpired historically. And the victory of Agincourt was in 1415, but the audience would have known that Henry V would die in 1422, only seven years after, and leave behind the offspring that he will have by Catherine of France, whom we see him wooing comically, hilariously here in the last act of Henry V, that union will produce the offspring of the very weak and in fact perhaps mentally afflicted Henry VI, but it will also precipitate exactly what Henry tried to avoid. Why did Henry choose to pursue these fictitious claims against France and claims to the throne of France in order to turn English attention outward and unify it against a foreign foe. And he more or less, less explicitly says that that is what he was trying to do, to prevent civil war at home. But once he dies too soon and leaves nothing in place to prevent it, England lost France and turned back upon itself and began devouring itself in a series of civil wars known as the Wars of the Roses between 1455 and 1485. The Roses are the two houses, the White Rose, emblematic of the House of York, the Red Rose, emblematic of the House of Lancaster. George R. R. Martin, Game of Thrones, says that his novels, The Game of Ice and Fire, on which the show Game of Thrones was based, was in fact influenced by the Wars of the Roses as depicted by Shakespeare. In the process, after the death of Henry in 1422, England lost France decisively due to the loss of the battle, the siege of Orléans in 1422 by a character that we all know, Joan of Arc. Shakespeare dramatizes all of this in his other history play tetralogy, actually written before 
this tetralogy, Joan of Arc appears in those plays, and she appears as not only an enemy but a witch, totally ideologically slanted portrait of her, because she won. She raised the siege of Orléans. Of course, she was captured and executed in 1431, but basically England lost France and turned then back upon itself in the Wars of the Roses, which went on and on and finally ended with the union of the two houses, the end of the Plantagenet dynasty, all the kings we are seeing here, and the union, the marriage of the two roses. There is a famous emblem known as the Tudor rose, which is a white rose and a red rose hybridized or fused together in a rather beautiful design. And that symbolizes the union of the two houses and the ascendance of a new dynasty with Henry VII in 1485, who will, of course, lead to Henry VIII, who will lead to Elizabeth, the Tudor queen on the throne in Shakespeare's own time. Therefore, what we are seeing here is this moment in this enormous arc of history, most of which is war and more war for well over a hundred years, only to end up with a new dynasty based, if nothing else, upon the exhaustion of a century of war abroad and civil war at home. To turn back to our play, we left off last time with the landing of the English fleet, the chorus describing the embarking of that fleet from Dover across the English Channel to France. And we talked last time about Act Three, Scene Three, the siege of the French garrison at Harfleur. And it is a bloodless siege. Basically, the scene consists of a big, long speech by Henry. The power of the imagination is a major theme in this play. The chorus insists that we must use our imagination to bring this enormous panorama to life and to unify it because it's split up into many varying groups and factions and venues. We have to use our imagination to knit this all together into a vision. But also, Henry uses his power of language, his power of speech making, when he has almost nothing else to use. It is historically true that the English were badly, badly outnumbered from the moment they landed in France, exhausted by forced marches. And it isn't just propaganda that they won against amazing odds against them. And the greatest weapon they had is Henry V's power of speech making. We should never underestimate 
the power of political speech making, whatever lapse it may have suffered in our time where there are no great speech makers in sight. In the United States, we have to remember Abraham Lincoln. In England, during World War II, the speeches of Winston Churchill, and these were enormously important weapons in the hands of the good guys, the sides that eventually won out against the bad side. Here, before the walls of Harfleur, as we saw last week, Henry delivers a, on the surface, remarkably repellent speech. Surrender, or we'll do all sorts of terrible things. I will not be able, if you do not surrender, to keep soldiers from doing what soldiers do when they fight abroad. There is no way that a commander can stop them from raping, pillaging, and plundering. That's what they do. They will be out of my control, and it will be all your fault. They will rape your daughters. They will kill your old men and children. It's a horrible speech, made perhaps nearly unbearable as in the recording of these podcasts, we are undergoing the war between Hamas and Israel in Gaza and the terrible, terrible question of who is guilty of what according to the rules of warfare. The phrase by the Welsh comic and yet serious character Flewellen here Things must go according to the proper rules of war, and otherwise they are war crimes. That is a large theme in this play. In that way, this is a rather startlingly topical play. And here we have to be careful, as I said last week, about judging. This speech is merely a ruse. Henry has no intention of allowing any of those things to go on. And in fact, though I usually go consecutively scene by scene, let me jump. This is Act 3, Scene 3. If we jump only three scenes forward, we see juxtaposed with this what proves that it is merely a fake. Pistol begs in scene six, Flewellen, the Welsh commander, for a reprieve for the character Bardolph, one of the merry gang of pranksters that we've been following, the Falstaff crew that we've been following for three plays. All those lowlifes have come over here and gotten a whole new career as soldiers, whether they want it or not. And Bardolph, true to form, has been caught robbing a church, not just robbing, but robbing a church, and he's due to be hanged. Flewellen refuses out of honor, and Henry V endorses this against his own former comrade in trickery, saying we would have all offenders so cut off. And he gives a speech warning the soldiers not 
to pillage, not to abuse. So we know, looking backwards, at the Siege of Harfleur, that this is all a fake, a ruse, chess playing, and it works. Harfleur surrenders without loss of life on either side. It was a bold-faced lie, but it prevented a great deal of bloodshed. This is the ruse of the fox. Shakespeare pondering political theory. The great influence on the theory of the time was, of course, Machiavelli. And Machiavelli says that the prince must use whatever methods are necessary to preserve the state, which can include brutality, and we will come up against that question later, or lying. And Henry is very good at lying, at making ruses that work. The trickery that he learned in Falstaff's gang serves him well. In scene four of Act Three, we meet the woman that Henry, at the end of the play, is going to woo and marry in a hilarious scene of wooing because neither speaks the other's language to any great extent. Catherine of France and her old gentlewoman named Alice. There's a lot of minor silly comedy in this play, maybe to lighten up all the warfare. Catherine is trying without any success to learn English. And she has started in, you know, French one here. She has started trying to learn the names of parts of the body. And she gets to the English words foot and count or count in French, which was a type of gown. And they sound to her like words that no gentle lady would ever pronounce. In other words, of course, they sound like the F word and the C word. The humor, the, the politics may be high, but the humor is low in this play. And that's that. The panoramic nature of the play means we simply keep switching in quick cuts, as a movie director would have it. Shakespeare really inventing a kind of experimental theater in order to deal with panoramic plays like this. The play where this comes to a crescendo, this type of panoramic technique, is Antony and Cleopatra, in my mind, one of the great tragedies, though it's not always included with the Macbeths and Hamlets and so forth, but a wonderful play, which also has, it has something like 53 scenes and it just keeps switching and again between two geographical areas, Rome and Egypt, with an enormous cast of characters. This was a total, once again, violation of the classical ideal of a play that came from Aristotle of having unity of time, place, and character. Here it is 
multiple and ramifying. But it works. We do keep moving, however, from scene to scene, from place to place, and from one set of characters to another. In scene five of act three, we move briefly to the French court, where basically we simply get a description from the French point of view of the poor condition of Henry V's army, and this is historically true. How have they even gotten this far? The French are asking themselves, scratching their heads. And somebody makes a humorous remark that, well, that cold, damp climate that they all grow up in over there seems to have bred them able to deal with marching through the mud and the rain here. Uh, nevertheless, the prediction is that the English will give up out of simply being demoralized as much as anything else. We move in Act 3, Scene 7 to Emissary, uh, Act 3, Scene 6, I'm sorry, the Emissary from the French to the English, Mont Montjoy or Montjoie, who arrogantly says to Henry, well, we could have beat you at Harfleur, but we've decided to wait. Some barefaced lies are more believable than others, and that's totally stupid. But, he says, kneel at our feet and pay some ransom, and we'll consider paying some mercy to you. Total arrogance, and I spoke last week about in comedy, traditional comedy, coming from Roman new comedy into the tradition of Shakespearean and Elizabethan comedy, of the two comic types that are always in conflict in these plots, the alazan or overreacher or boaster versus the iron, the self-deprecator, the man who makes himself less than he really is, the modest-seeming character, the underdog who always wins against the big blowhard. And that is totally how England versus France is portrayed in this play, which has basically a comic structure, the victory of the beleaguered underdog over the big blowhards, going all the way back to something like the contest between Odysseus and the Cyclops in the Odyssey, where it's very much the same way. At any rate, Henry, acting the Iron character, the understating character, but also the fox, the trickster, again, says to the emissary from the French, well, I shouldn't be admitting this to the enemy, but yeah, our army really is exhausted and few in number. Nevertheless, I think we'll still keep going on. Planting this idea, historians to this day try to account for the French loss. They should not have lost, let alone so massively as they did. And Shakespeare may, may be quite right in attributing part of it to psychological causes. 
just as, not to be too heavy-handed, the attack on Israel by Hamas right now is said to have been successful partly because of Israeli overconfidence and complacency, whatever the truth of that may be. Here we have it definitely within the play. And we switch over to France in the last scene, scene seven, to see the French themselves in the royal court and once again the Dauphin, the heir to the French throne. The play doesn't make clear that it's mostly the Dauphin in charge because the actual king of France was afflicted during this time with at least intermittent mental illness and was out of commission. Therefore, this is all being conducted by the Dauphin, the heir to the throne, who is portrayed repeatedly as an intolerable ass, who is here busting about he, how he just can't wait until the morning, compares his horse to Pegasus, we will fly above them, and you just know anybody this bloated is going to get his comeuppance eventually, at least in a play. And that takes us to the climactic act four, and as always, to the chorus, which gives a speech, in this case, a particularly vivid speech, but a speech at the beginning of each act of the play. This particular speech is a vivid picture of the English camp at night. As I said last time, we're not used to seeing Shakespeare's narrative powers because he writes drama, to power to create a narrative picture and description, which serves him well in this panoramic play. And there's a vivid picture of the English camp at night much of the early part of Act Four takes place the night before the battle in the English camp, and a vivid portrayal of the bedraggled and depressed, physically bedraggled, mentally depressed condition of the English army. And Henry IV begins fighting the Battle of Agincourt, you might say, before the battle, because the first thing he has to do in the night before is prepare and rev up these rather devastated troops of his. And he does it again through language and through acting a role with remarkable effectiveness. His cheer and high spirits lift up his troops and it works. The chorus, apologizes in advance, as when we finally witness this, as well he might, for the inadequacy of the actual battle itself ahead of time. He says, we shall much disgrace with four or five most vile and ragged foils, right ill-disposed in brawl ridiculous, the name of Agincourt. Yet, sit and see, minding the things by what their mockeries be. It's an apology. We are about to disgrace ourselves, the entire battle of Agincourt with thousands 
of soldiers are going to be represented by four or five ragged foils, ragged swords, brawl ridiculous, a mockery, but we must transform it through language and the imagination. He's even righter than he lets on because when we actually get there, the entire battle takes place off stage, whatever stage business there could have been in the original production. There is at least no stage direction mandating that unless you count this speech as one. Basically, the battle takes place and the French come rushing in saying, oh my God, we lost, we lost. However, here we are still working up towards that. And Henry V knows that he has to prepare troops for, an for a battle against impossible odds. And what he does is acting. He's an actor and he's good at it. He borrows someone's cloak and goes about in disguise. And this is an old trick. It's a, again a trick out of comedy. The Duke in Measure for Measure will do exactly the same thing. Disguise himself so they don't know it's the ruler and go about listening, especially to what people are really saying about him. What is your real opinion of your ruler instead of the careful stuff you say to my face? Here, Henry is going around and again, using a disguise to deliberately manipulate his troops to a good end. He meets up with Pistol, who does not recognize Henry as Henry. Uh, Pistol does praise the king, but he praises him as the king that he knew, a good party boy. In contrast to that, Henry overhears Fluellen telling some of the soldiers to be more in order, not to be so loud, because that is against the ceremony of the wars. Fluellen is a comic character who replaces Falstaff. He's not nearly as funny or great a character, but he has his place in the play because he insists on the honor and ceremony of the wars, proper warfare, and he lives up to it. Here the contrast is with Pistol. It's all hot air. He talks like a guy who just loves and lives to fight. He's actually a coward who's never fought at all. Fluellen is the real thing. And Henry recognizes it. He says, though it appear a little out of fashion, there is much care and valor in this Welshman. The Welsh keep showing up in the Tetralogy, partly satirized and partly not. Because of the Tudor connection through the Monmouth name with their Welsh origins, we got the hot air fraud, the Alizon Welshman, Owen Glendower in Henry IV Part One, claims to be a great wizard, but in fact, he's a coward and a fraud who never shows up for the Battle of Shrewsbury. Here we got a genuine good man who is also a Welshman. Then the disguised Henry meets up 
with three common soldiers, including one named Williams, who is babbling about to his comrades how the king is responsible for every death of every soldier in war. Henry V disputes this and they get into an argument and they end up exchanging gauges, exchanging gloves for a future duel. Another soldier says, we have French quarrels enough, this is trivial, but nevertheless they go through with it, this theme of bickering versus unity. But it has its point even as the scene ends, Henry soliloquizes and in fact admits what he just got done denying to Williams. He says, upon the king, let us our lives, our souls, our debts, our careful wives, our children, and our sins lay on the king. We must bear all. Private men have heart's ease, kings do not. Finally, in this soliloquy, he begs God not to take in the battle vengeance. And what he means is, in a careful speech, he speaking perhaps to God, that he has reinterred Richard II's body and he has hired 500 people to pray and built two chantries for them to do it in, all trying to placate God over the guilt of his father, Henry IV's deposing and having Richard killed. We finally approach Agincourt. This was a historical battle, the great victory. Historians dispute what the numbers were. Here, the claim in Act 4, Scene 3, one character says that the French are three score thousand, and another character says that's five to one. In other words, 60,000 versus uh, French versus 12,000 English. That's a bit inflated. Uh, the French, according to historians, the numbers are highly disputed, but the agreement is that the English were badly outnumbered in actuality. Maybe the French had 12,000. Maybe the English had five to 6,000, but they were outnumbered at least, in other words, two to one. In Act 4, Scene 3, Henry says, this battle will be on St. Crispin's Day, October 25th, 1415, and predicts that it will be celebrated every St. Crispin's Day to the end of history. And we have the Battle of Agincourt, except that we don't. Act 4, Scene 5, as I have said, there is no battle, not even the four or five swords, unless stage business took place that is not mandated by any stage direction. Instead, the Dauphin and other French characters come wailing in, in Act 4, Scene 5, claiming that they've lost the battle. They haven't yet surrendered. It's not over entirely yet, but nevertheless, 
um, they have had a great loss in the major battle. And it was against amazing odds and even more amazing, very few losses on the part of the English. The French lost massively. The French lost thousands. The English lost hundreds. And very few who were of the aristocratic level, whereas the French, the aristocratic level, practically wiped out the greater part of the aristocracy of France in this one battle. It's an amazing victory, still something of a mystery perhaps, except perhaps for the magic, the language, and the acting of Henry V. The rest is aftermath and outcome, and we will deal with all of that. There is much more to come, first in terms of war, then in terms of peace in Act 5, some of it quite entertaining, and we will take up that aftermath next week, and then on to a new play, and as I say, no doubt a comedy.